Welcome to the Educational Physics Podcast. I am your host, João Figueiredo. This podcast is all about education, pedagogy, mindset, and uh, really any other nonsense that I think about during the week. Enjoy. Also, please forgive me as the audio during this podcast wasn't the best. I'm still learning how to adjust the settings for the best quality possible. Uh, hopefully, the speech is still intelligible enough for you to take value from this podcast. Thank you. Welcome to the Educational Physics Podcast. This is episode number two which is also a podcast that is quite special because it's on a seminar that I ran online on learner-centered education. So this podcast will be basically that presentation plus a few more comments that I will allow myself to expand upon uh, as, of course, podcasts are long-form means of communication. So here we go. First of all, what is learner-centered education? It is a model for education that is based on the student's needs, learning triggers, and social experience. The core of the curriculum, if there is such a thing, is the student. And the way the student conceives and perceives the landscape of the world, in other words, its own reality, is how the curriculum will be developed or at least around which that curriculum will be developed. What does that mean? It means that everyone learns differently, which means everyone should be taught differently. Now, this is my preferred model for education. I will say a couple of quite controversial things today, such as, I don't really plan lessons beforehand. I don't really do it. There's only one exception when I do plan ahead of time, which is when I, I run group classes that are based on specific topics. When I do those, I do plan what I will do. Um, but on one-on-one setting, for example, which is what I do the most, I don't really plan lessons. And the reason for that is because I truly believe that it is the student's job, even if accidentally, to plan their own lessons. More on that in a minute. Now, what is expected from students when it comes to learner-centered education is that they outline their own goals. And not only that, they outline the way they will achieve those goals. Now, our job as educators is to facilitate that process. In other words, it might be difficult for a student at first to even know, A, what goals they wish to achieve, and B, how, how they will get to those goals and what kind of trajectory that they must um, follow. That's perfectly reasonable and it doesn't mean that that student is incapable of outlining those goals and, and trajectories. It just means that we've been conditioned to not do that. We've been conditioned by a system, uh, in this case of education, that basically tells us that, uh, you know, follow the curriculum, follow the books, you will get to the destination, which is fundamentally your grades and then eventually a job. Um, so we're basically told what to do and when to do it. Learners and education completely gets rid of that idea and it focuses on the students' needs, students' goals and students' way of 
conceptualizing the world around them. That affects learn the learning experience greatly because however we conceive the world will immediately create a bias. That's number one. It will create a certain prejudice as to what's going to work and what's not going to work. It will create a, an understanding of nature, social dynamics, family, relationships. So it is super important that we understand as teachers what motivates a student, how they see the world, and how they see themselves in the world. Now, our job as teachers is to facilitate, like I said earlier, not to limit their progress. I would like to spend this podcast talking uh, about the pioneers of, of um, learner-centered education. I won't do that today. Probably what I'll do is actually create several different episodes on each one of these personalities and uh, explore more deeply instead of just, you know, uh, scratching the surface or making this episode 17 hours long, which we don't want. But I'll name some of the pioneers and that's going to lay out a bit of a foundation for future episodes. And hopefully I'll be lucky enough to even speak to guests to other people on the podcast about each one of these um, personalities. The first one would be Carl Rogers. And Carl Rogers was a very passionate thinker, psychologist, philosopher, author, educator. And Rogers really explored quite deeply the idea of listening, listening with a purpose, listening actively and in order to achieve a goal. And Rogers also explored very deeply the idea of becoming a complete person. His ideas on self-actualization and, 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 and self-definition, so to speak, um, are, were really groundbreaking. And I would love to spend more time talking about Rogers as I appreciate his work immensely. Then we have Jean Piaget. Jean Piaget had a different uh, understanding of how and why children learn. His understanding of the role of social dynamics and the role of human nature were quite unique. And likewise, I really do intend to spend a, a lot of time discussing these ideas. And then we've got Lev Vygotsky, or some people call, say Vygotsky. Um, but um, Lev Vygotsky is a very interesting uh, thinker, in my opinion, because he really understood the role of social interaction in the way and the pace children learn. In other words, a very simple example that is quite telling. And I really kind of, uh, this resonates to me or with me quite a bit, which is this idea, why do children learn to speak? Well, because they see adults speaking to each other. And children have this intrinsic need to be a part of the, the community, the whole. So they realize their brains basically tell them, look, we have to um, pick that up that talking thing because we're being left out at least to an extent because a we don't understand what they're saying and b um, they don't understand what i'm trying to say so the role so according to lev vygotsky the role of social demand in learning is quite substantial and not to be ignored 
Then we have John Dewey and we have uh, uh, other personalities such as uh, Maria Montessori. And all these people really paved the way for us educators of the 21st century to understand really what are the real needs of children and why that is. But once we understand why and how children learn, it is important to establish a framework for the children. And by the way, I'm saying children a lot, but I actually apply these concepts to adults as well, because in my line of work, I teach all sorts of ages from four years old to 70 plus. Um, so um, the framework that I use when it comes to understanding concepts is a, a sort of a pyramid. And at the very bottom, you'll find understanding. The, that phase is extremely important because it really showcases uh, exactly what the concepts are, if you understand them, how you break them down, and ultimately the test of fire is, can you explain it back to the person who expose that concept to you. In other words, if you are a teacher and you're explaining something to a student, then you'll have to uh, not only break it down clearly, but also ask enough questions that will challenge the student's understanding of that concept to the point that they can actually explain it back to you. That's the baseline of learning. You have to understand the concepts you're trying to learn. The second phase is practice slash repetition, which if you're dealing with some sort of more textbook oriented uh, discipline, I don't know, like maths or science, what you have to do is experiment and do. If you're dealing with music, you have to do it. You have to put in the repetitions. If you're dealing with sports, you have to do it. But it's in a very sort of methodical, and perhaps even mechanical way. You'll have to run the experiment the same way you would follow a recipe. And the reason for that is because it is not yet time for you to take too many chances based on creativity, mainly because it might lead to overwhelm and confusion as to where you're coming from concept-wise. But once you can do those repetitions in a loop without stuttering, in other words, if you can run the same experiment several times without changing the results, um, then it is time to apply that concept to the real world. So you got to try to, as a teacher, facilitate then um, the students to explore these concepts in real life scenarios. That's our job as teachers to also create those scenarios for them. So, so children or adults can go out there and explore those concepts. Uh, by themselves in the real world without the constraints and even support of a more controlled environment. Now, what's often strange for teachers is the understanding as to how do we assess students when they are at the center of um, the learning process? And the answer is quite straightforward, but it is perhaps challenging to apply at a large scale, which is our job also as teachers to identify ways to do that efficiently, which is to assess students in a collaborative fashion. In other words, students have to participate in the process of self-evaluation. 
they have to come forward and identify their successes, their failures, their lessons that they took away from their failures, what they took away even obviously from succeeding likewise. Uh, so they are able to then repeat the same process or similar in the future. And, and it is important to then understand and, and, and discuss with the students what is that they feel could be taken from that experiment or, or that lesson or whatever the scenario is and how many other scenarios or situations do they envision themselves using those same concepts that's the collaborative aspect if a student fully comprehends what that lesson was about what they took from it what they can then uh, tweak and then utilize in different contexts then you have uh, what i would call almost this holistic learning experience and I, I i smirked because we know that the word holistic became a little bit um mystical but that's not what i mean i really mean as a whole body and brain experience it is also very important that you allow students to come up with their own goals like how else do they um project using these these concepts for their own benefit this is extremely important motivation comes from wanting to pursue something that you see as valuable which once again connects to that idea of the social context and our context within that social context and how then everything that we're learning how that how does that fit into my narrative and my place in the world and what i want to achieve so then the question has to be how do you engage in collaborative education one of my favorite and most influential people really as a teacher and it's been an influence an influence for me for many many years uh, was or is socrates and socrates obviously by the way you can see that i've got a picture of socrates right up there there's plato there's aristoteles and there's darwin so Socrates was obviously a philosopher. If you don't know who Socrates is, okay. Um, and one of his biggest contributions to humanity was the Socratic inquiry system or method. And Socrates really believed in the idea of reminiscing, meaning that people really had the, the answers to all questions as long as they were asked the correct questions. Um, and the role of an educator as a facilitator, once again, is that of asking leading questions that will allow the students to really open up their minds to the answers that they already have. Now, you might think, well, I, I don't really know the answers to everything. And the idea, the ideas carried by Lev Vygotsky, for example, would kind of complement this notion because the zone of proximal uh learning it would would kind of uh, feed into this or the proximal development would feed into this in a way that okay we have to make sure that we find the sweet spot for learning whilst still driving that process by means of questioning rather than just depositing answers into the students brains so what i would say is that you should then plan your questions beforehand 
allow time for these to be answered and avoid interrupting the student too often. Stimulate dialogue with follow-up questions. There's always more questions. I really believe that you can challenge someone to uh, answer something deeply by asking why questions. On a personal note, I really don't think I've ever left the why phase in my life. Facilitate that process of self-discovery. That would be a Carl, a Carl Rogers idea uh, where students, by answering your questions, they're, they're kind of unwinding their own understanding of things and they're listening to themselves. So it creates this positive feedback loop of learning. Keep the dialogue focused. In other words, try not to digress and try to make sure to channel the student's attention uh, back to the topic so they don't digress themselves as well. Frequently summarize what's being said and allow the students to actually recap constantly what they are thinking about because, you know, our thoughts can be erratic. They can be fast and rapid and, and a bit all over the place. So allow the students to every now and then recap, go back to where they came from and try to stay as organized as possible during that dialogue. Ask open questions. Ask questions that will promote discussion. It's not, don't ask black or white questions, in other words, right? Ask students about their thoughts uh, on the, su the subject you're trying to discuss. Ask students to, students to discuss uh, past experiences that they've had where they had to deal with something similar. Discuss ideas and concepts. And again, back to a Lev Vygotsky kind of idea, Avoid asking questions that you know to be above the student's level of understanding. If needed be, just reword the questions and adapt the language to that student in front of you. Make sure that they can follow along and make sure that they can respond and answer your questions using their own language. Now, during the process of learning, you can give students plenty of options, plenty of opportunity to explore their freedom. For example, and I do this quite a lot, both in my teaching and my parenting. I give my students the, the possibility or the opportunity even to choose between two different exercises. Now, the exercise I am the one who's um, deciding as to what's going to be optional. So I'll give you an example. With my child, uh, if I, I constantly ask him questions and I ask him, for example, do you want carrots or broccoli with your dinner? Now, those two options, both of them, I already decided beforehand that they are both positive outcomes. So what I'm doing is empowering my kid with the, the power to choose between two positive outcomes. The question should never be, what do you want for dinner? Period. Question mark. Because... What do you think is going to happen? More often than not, you, the, the answer will be, well, I want chocolate cake and pizza. And, you know, why would we, would we blame them, right? Uh, we would love to have that every day if we weren't extremely unhealthy. The thing is to give them options. With my students, for example, I ask them, do you want to start with a warm-up or, or do you want to watch a video? So I give them two positive outcome options. And by the way, in my lessons, what usually happens is that they're just choosing the order 
it's not even one or the other do you want to do a warm-up first and then a video or video first and then a warm-up you're going to do both anyway but the empowerment the empowerment is still there so how can you carry this discussion forwards if you're applying that idea of socratic inquiry then you know ask open questions like i said earlier for example ask could you explain to me what you mean by that and this is often something that can lead to very interesting discussions and a lot of people feel quite confused by by those kinds of questions because once again it's conditioning we are not used to be to being asked what we mean by things and we kind of see it a bit threatening at first because we just want to well we just want to be accepted um and and taken at face value so whatever i say just take it as that's it end of story with practice actually you start to enable the students to really uh, seek deeper answers uh, analyze their own thinking become more self-aware and all of that are fundamental tools for education. Challenge their assumptions. You know, just ask them, are you sure about that? And uh, make sure you smile when you ask questions with that sort of language, because it's supposed to come across as a little, a little sarcastic. And don't do that to really young children, by the way. Um, if you're dealing with really young children just ask them where did that idea come from why do you think that is could there be another way of thinking about this do you think all your friends think about this the same way allow them to also understand that there could be different perspectives out there and that their own is merely the result of their own bias ask for evidence of as to why they're saying the things they're saying ask for uh, past experiences uh, or things they've seen perhaps on on youtube online from their parents their friends ask for evidence though and this is a really important one because it cultivates empathy ask them as we are outlining all these goals for what you want to learn do you think that there's anything negative that could come from it including for other people around us this is basically embedding ethics in education which is i mean the most ethical thing to do now for me it's important to also discuss the limits of learner center education because there are some limits and there are times and places when we'll have to unplug that that mode for a bit and engage in more no i wouldn't call it traditional teaching but less facilitating and more leading uh, look the reality is that we're all learning how to learn and too much freedom can actually lead to a lot of confusion and there could be a, a feeling of being lost in the process of thinking so it's okay to every now and then step in and step up as an educator and take the students hands and guide them through the process even if if just as an example of how they can do it next time and that could also be a really important that should also be a really important next step when you're guiding them in a more uh, with a bit more of a leadership sort of attitude 
then at the end of that process make sure then you recap and you bring it back to them the ability to retain okay here's what we did why we did it that way do you think you can then use these techniques next time you you are exposed to a challenge a challenge that is similar to this one now teachers really important make sure you don't teach with your ego you're not supposed to or it's not helpful for you to enter um, a teaching learning relationship where your agenda is solely for your benefit and we might do this subconsciously at times we want our students to succeed but why because you want them to succeed or because you you want yourself to succeed through your students and this is a very important question to ask and often the limits of learner-centered education come from the fact that teachers don't know how to surrender their egos so focus on that practice some self-awareness and then make sure that that ego doesn't get in the way now there's two ideas here that i want to discuss the problem with uh, humanistic education as it's known uh, at least the way it's been practiced so far and what we would call more standardized education based on grades and rankings and all that uh, those metrics and both of these schools of thought and philosophies have issues and that's just the nature of the beast you can't escape the flawed nature of humankind in all things it's going to show up so the issue with humanistic education is indeed what i already brought up earlier which is too much freedom too much um openness can lead to a lack of structure that a lot of students or some students might not be compatible with and not just because they will feel lost but we might be um raising quite self-entitled children we might be actually feeling their ego whilst completely suppressing ours which is a good thing for us but the children also must know and understand the role of humility in the learning process and at times humanistic education can be a little too kind-hearted to the point that it becomes submissive to the children so there is often this conflation between um, humanistic education and lack of discipline which must be contended with and cleverly mitigated because otherwise like i said things can just start to run wild and not yours nor the students goals will be achieved on the flip side of that obviously the problem with standardized education is the obvious we are creating a one-size-fits-all model for all students who learn differently and plus the creation of a system that is based on points and credits and grades and rankings it can be highly demotivating for students it can be feel very alienating like as a student you don't feel like you you are really observed beyond uh, fulfilling a certain criteria that is measured by numbers that's very dehumanizing when you think about it right we have emotions and feelings and fears and expectations and it all becomes reduced to a number that is a fundamental problem with today's education as we try to overcome this 
we we see that there's a lot of there's a lot of um, corruption in the system. Not uh, sometimes not even intended corruption. Sometimes intended, but the reality is that we have to make sure that we still focus on the child first uh, and the teachers and then the system because obviously we still need to focus on the system so it can carry on otherwise it breaks down so as i think about the fact that a all systems have problems and b all systems have qualities then really the the system to pursue has to be something along the lines of a polymodal system where we try to extract the best of all the worlds the best from humanistic education from uh, rankings based neoliberal education from social constructivism everything we need to like socratic thinking at, at the core of how to communicate with students but then how do we assess them maybe we need a different model there and goes and, and really understand how all these different um, components can work together to create this I'll use the word again this holistic environment for education every single student is absolutely unique and yes there are patterns and human nature sort of repeats itself after a while and the more experienced you are the more attentive you are as well and the more observant you are the more you'll see that there are signs and there are certain uh, like i said patterns that we can identify but the reality is that people are extremely nuanced and it is important to understand that not everyone learns the same way not everyone wants to interact the same way with you uh, people change from day to day and week to week let alone you know from human to human the same person will enter your classroom one day with a certain attitude and the next week with a completely different approach to learning and life and being there and we as teachers have to be able to pivot and uh, you know adapt understand where the student is coming from try to approach the situation always from a fresh perspective and by doing so we will continue to carry on and carry out that process of facilitation of the education process so the principles behind this philosophy of polymodal education would be to be flexible to be elastic to allow for growth mindset which is not um, which is a, a term that i will not take any credit for this is carol dweck's um, growth mindset idea which hopefully in the future episode i will also discuss more in depth it's got to be goal oriented which is completely compatible with the idea of learner-centered education our ability as educator educators to switch roles depending on the student so we, we sometimes we might play the role of the inquisitor sometimes we might play the, the role of just the facilitator and giving them space to think by themselves we have to constantly be able to switch roles as needed and honestly this is one thing that i find extremely important as an educator we have to make sure that we have an understanding of psychology pedagogy philosophy physiology everything matters when it comes to teaching teaching is such a a broad 
an all-inclusive science, isn't it? Because we have to understand how the student thinks, which is psychology. We have to understand why the student thinks that way, which would be philosophy. We have to understand body language and, and, and signs of stress and anxiety, physiology. Pedagogy is to then understand how we can then communicate those ideas that we want to, you know, teach and, and, and demonstrate. We have to know how to communicate them efficiently. All of these different components come together to create a great teacher, a master teacher. And that's our job as educators to constantly pursue more knowledge within all these different fields. So finally, I just want to ask you all a question that I ask all my uh, teachers that I hire, which is, if tomorrow were to be your last day on earth and you had time for one last lesson, what would you teach? What would be the focus of your lesson? What would you focus on? What would you try to discuss and debate and achieve? I urge you to think about this every day of your life because hopefully your answer will change frequently enough to demonstrate that you are contending with a, a, a very philosophical idea. So think about this as I close today's episode. If tomorrow is your last day on earth and you have time for one more lesson, what will that be about? Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe, like, comment, share, you know, the whole thing. It's been a pleasure. Take care, everyone, and learn better.